This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Alex Edney-Brown. Alex is a PhD candidate in international relations at the University of Melbourne. She joined me in the studio to talk about her lecture, Drones, Waging War from a Distance. And I'm very pleased to have a special guest in with me. Her name is Alex Edney-Brown and she is a PhD candidate in international relations at the University of Melbourne, which means she's also teaches at the University of Melbourne. And I know that uh, particularly PhD candidates work very hard uh, on their teaching and possibly should be remunerated a little bit more um, than they do. But that said, she has a great level of expertise on this topic that we will be discussing drones waging war from a distance which uh, Alex will be giving this talk at Richmond Library on Thursday the 20th of September at 7pm. So hello there Alex. Hi thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you and great to have your expertise. I think you are really uh, situated in a very unique position having spoken with um, people who have been directly affected by drones in a military setting in the Middle East and also speaking with those who have operated drones. Um, So it's really great to speak with you. First up, um, what is a drone? Because, um, you know, there are various technical words for it, um, but you know, did did drones exist, say, in World War One or World War Two, but under a different name, and and perhaps that it was a bit more of a broader concept? Yeah, I guess the first thing to point out is that when we're talking about drones in this context, it's not the kind of drone that you buy for a hundred dollars at JB Hi-Fi. We're talking about um, airplanes that are essentially like any form of warplane. Um, the difference being that they're pilotless. They're controlled remotely by pilots who are tens of thousands of miles away, like uh, they're on bases in Nevada or Las Vegas in the United States or in Lincolnshire in the UK. Um, So that's a primary difference because they still drop the same kind of bombs that ordinary planes Yes, such as, um, I'm guessing, fighter jets that would generally be in the Middle East, like the FA-18s, Super Hornets and that. Yeah, absolutely. And these are still used in tandem with drones. Yes. So it's not that there's been a complete shift to drone warfare. Um, yeah, and in terms of their history, they have a really long history. So in World War One and World War Two, there were already attempts to try and remove pilots out of warplanes to both um, protect the pilot's life and also to um, kind of technologically wow the people living under them into um, into kind of situations where they felt totally powerless. Mm. It was called like the moral effect of bombing. If you just sort of lowered civilians' morale, then they'd entirely um, give themselves over to um, the enemy or what have you. And I was interested to read um, that there was a situation um, with a B-24 Liberator, which is a really huge plane. Like, this is a massive uh, plane with many, many personnel in it. It can carry huge amounts of fuel, for example, um, that actually went wrong because their version of a drone when they utilised this B-24 was to take it up into the air during World War Two, and then once they got it up high enough, then they had to parachute out of the plane before it then you know 
did did its job dropping a bomb and it didn't actually necessarily go very well. All right. You're yeah. teaching me things here. I haven't heard of this. Yeah, I was very surprised. I'm particularly interested because my uncle, not my uncle, my um, grandfather was a captain of B-24s for the Royal Air Force, um, the British one. So, yeah, I, because I know how large they are, I was very surprised that it could be, you know, a drone, an unmanned um, aeroplane of some kind. Are the drones that we currently use, particularly I'm thinking America because they use them the most, um, how large are they in terms of proportionality to perhaps a, a fighter jet plane or any other kind of machinery that they would use? Um, they're surprisingly big. I saw a drone in the um, National Air and Space Museum in the United States and that was my first time seeing one in person and I'd gone and done all of these interviews with victims of drone attacks so it was actually quite um, a difficult experience finally being confronted with one. Um, I'd say that they're around the same size as, as an F-35 um, fighter jet so like a normal fighter jet yeah. size but on the smaller end of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those who go to the Avalon Air Show will certainly know what we're talking about if they've seen the planes in person, but they are pretty big. Like, yeah. Yeah. And they would probably need to be that big given that they're carrying the same kind of weaponry and arsenal that fighter jets do carry, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So um, some of them carry Hellfire missiles, which are 35 pounds, and then others carry... Um, bombs that are 500 pounds, which are the same weight as what conventional military aircraft are carrying. Yeah. Um, and these are really big bombs, you know, like we hear of drones as being um, accurate and precise weapons that limit civilian casualties and civilian harm. But this is quite a purposefully uh, curated narrative by governments and militaries like it's just not the case that they're accurate at all yeah. and that's for intelligence failure reasons but it's also because of the size of the explosives that they're dropping if you drop a 500 pound bomb on um, a village that's like you're not just killing the people directly under the under the bomb you're killing mm. people up to 90 meters away as well yeah and that's um, – I was interested in the, the kill radius, as it said, um, for some of those bombs. You mentioned the Hellfire. Um, the radius there is 15 to 20 metres. And I'm guessing the one you were just talking about was the GBU-12. Yeah, that's it. Which is 60 to 90. So, you know, when you think about that 90 metres, for example, there are barely any situations, if any at all, perhaps maybe in remote mountains where there's only one or two people – within that radius. Yeah, precisely. If you were dropping a bomb in a village, there would definitely be other people within that radius. Yeah. Um, something that does happen fairly often is that people up in the mountains in Afghanistan are targeted because it's just assumed from a US military perspective that they must be Taliban. Mm. Um, so that would be like a rare situation in which only the person targeted is killed. But um, otherwise, there would there's a high chance that civilians are within the wake of the bomb. Yes, and you do mention there um, one of those examples where there isn't necessarily really strong evidence or conclusive evidence that this person is a relevant target to be bombing. Um, and I believe that there's a terminology for that type of killing and it, that it is really, it's a category in and of itself, that it, often these people are presumed uh, guilty rather than innocent? 
Yeah. Oh, there are all sorts of categories we could be referring to here. Yeah. Um, there's a fact that if you're a military-aged male in a combat zone, then you're um, deemed a legitimate, a legitimate target. Um, so if you're a teenage boy um, and you're in an area of war, which, you know, at the moment is like just Pretty the whole much of Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, etc., yeah. um, then you're considered a combatant until there's posthumous evidence proving you proving it otherwise but then there are very few groups um, on the ground actually conducting um, post-strike assessment. Yes and usually that's uh, NGOs that really get into the detail and their figures are very or vastly different to official government figures aren't they? Yeah absolutely um, and probably even on the lower end of things too because NGOs have problems of accessing remote areas yeah um but just to give you an example of how different ngo figures are to official figures um obama in 2016 like finally succumbed to public pressure to release some figures Mm. um and he said that between 64 and 116 civilians were killed in um Yemen, Pakistan and Somalia over, I think it was a three-year period or something. Yeah. Um, and the Bureau for Investigative Journalism, who have been committed to monitoring civilian deaths in those countries, mm. said that it was more likely that 1,142 civilians had been killed in those countries over that same time period. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, like 10 times higher the, um, than the amount that the Obama administration was admitting to. Yes, and um, it's interesting to note that those three countries you speak of are not war zones. There are not official wars that America is a part of in Pakistan, Yemen or Somalia. Yeah, absolutely. They're not declared war zones. Um, Unfortunately, uh, this also means that civilian casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan are often forgotten by NGOs and journalists because they like the story of this secret CIA war and Mm. these undeclared war zones. Um, uh, And while that's super important to draw attention to this highly secretive form of war, um, there are far more civilians being killed and injured in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria because of drone attacks, Um, yet these are kind of not given much journalistic attention because they're considered legitimate wars. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it is shocking, really, when you think about it, that um, America is essentially breaching their sovereignty by conducting warfare-style behaviour in their countries. Um, You know, Pakistan, I know, is one of those areas where they believe there are many um, terrorists that flee to Pakistan or or go back across um, because that's one of those key countries. But it is still surprising that, you know, America has that licence to just go in and do whatever it likes. Yeah, absolutely. And when you sort of read US military documents, they still have a very sort of colonial mindset. Like Afghanistan and Pakistan are sometimes not even referred to as distinct countries. They talk about like the AFPAC border and it kind of creates this like amorphous zone where like no one has political self-determination within that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's very worrying. It sets, drone warfare sets an extremely worrying precedent. Mm. Yeah. And if we're looking at the American example, um, I know a lot of people at the end of Obama's presidency um, you know, praised him for being such a, a great visionary leader, um, you know, for having won the Nobel Pre- Peace Prize. Um, but then there are some of the, the most vocal critics of Obama were, was exactly this, his use of drone uh, 
drones and not only the continuation of that use of drones, but an increase in the use of drones and also solidifying it as military policy by acknowledging the use of drones and how they've been used. Obviously not in very great detail, but certainly at least fessing up to it because I noted that uh, President George W. Bush, which obviously feels like a long time ago now, um, authorised around 50 drone strikes that killed 296 terrorists and 195 civilians in Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia. But then Obama, I'm sure, is, you know, many, many more times that. And obviously um, the, the figures I've got are not at the end of his presidency. So do you have an understanding of just how greater uh, it was, drones usage was under the Obama administration? Yeah, it was huge. I mean, for those of us who are researching in this area or journalists working in this area, um, he's been nicknamed the drone president. That's how um, regularly drone attacks were um, conducted under his presidency. I know that in his first year of um, his presidency that he conducted more drone attacks in um, Pakistan, Yemen and Somalia than George Bush had done for the whole of his presidency. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty upsetting that he was awarded the Nobel Peace, Peace Prize because under his watch, like, you know, hundreds of civilians were being injured and killed and like very deeply psychologically affected from living under drones too. Mm. Um I think that drones are probably the perfect weapon for like moderate to left-leaning governments because you can kind of create this idea amongst your public that uh, you're conducting a very ethical form of warfare that's barely harming the civilian population and so you can keep sort of public support or at least public complicity um, around the, war the wars that you're conducting. Mm. Um also, you can use them pretty secretively as well. Um, so if you're worried about public backlash in war, then, um, I don't know, being able to conduct strikes using the CIA, for instance, or using the US Air Force and then having, like, really poor um, forms of record-keeping or transparency. Like, this is all very, very politically convenient, you know? Yeah, it is. And Australia does play a role in supporting drone use in uh, America, for, you know, around the world. Certainly, um, it's been widely reported that uh, the Pine Gap military base... Uh, you know, which is obviously a really important intelligence collecting and mining and sweeping kind of base, um, utilising those massive satellites that they have access to. Um, you know, Pine Gap has been said to be one of those um, bases that provides vital information that gets passed on directly to America in terms of what might be potentially relevant targets. Yeah, absolutely. Pine Gap has a huge role in uh, US-led drone um, attacks by processing intelligence um, and that intelligence is then used to identify people for um, drone attacks. Uh, there's an airbase in Germany that kind of operates under the same system mm. um, that they need to process the intelligence and then identify um, quote-unquote insurgents for um, drone attacks. Um, and part of the reason that the United States needs these facilities um, provided by their allies is that they're collecting so much intelligence they actually just don't have um, enough analysts to sift through it um, yeah. and to, to, to come up with targets. Um, they need uh, other people in their, um, in like friendly or allied 
countries to be doing some of that processing because we're just talking about like such vast amounts of data every day, like thousands of hours of surveillance imagery being captured on a daily basis. Mm. They're just swamped in data. Yep. And, you know, so we have reference there at Australia. Um, I know that Australia... The, the government has said that they would spend around $2 billion acquiring their own armed drones uh, by early 2020s. So, you know, Australia is now trying to take part itself, um, at least in having a capability of using drones. It is interesting that we haven't really had much of a public debate around this as to whether uh, this is something the Australian population would support. Yeah, it's super interesting and, like, extremely worrying, right? Um, yeah. I guess this kind of speaks to the fact that foreign policy is barely spoken about at all. Um, and Australia is undergoing this huge defence build-up at the moment, like its biggest defence build-up since World War II, and there's been very little public mm. discussion about it. And there, there ought to be, as you say, this is like the first time that Australia is actually getting an armed drone capability of its own, like it's contributed to drone warfare in other ways, not just through Pine Gap. Um, it's also flown surveillance drones over Afghanistan for over four years. Um but this is the first time I'll be using armed drones and, like, I, I've barely heard anything about it um, in sort of mainstream media. No. It was yeah. news to me when I was researching for this interview, so that's <laughs> saying something. Yeah. Because I do read some of those foreign affairs, you know, news sources. Mm. Um, I would like to quickly really get on top of some of the first-hand experiences you have you know, really gathered the the information you've gathered from speaking with um, particularly Afghanis. You've gone to Afghanistan to speak to people who have um, been surveilled by drones, whose family members have been killed by drones, um, usually uh, just because they were in the area where there was a target. Um, and I would like to really understand more about what life is like to be not only in a war zone, um, but be in a war zone where sometimes you cannot identify, um, you know, any military equipment that could be of a direct personal threat to you. Because obviously the fighter jets are huge and they make a massive sound. So, I mean, not all of them, but the majority of them, particularly the FA-18s, etc., you know, do make those huge noises. You know what's coming. Yeah, I guess... Um the difference between living under drones and like occasionally having a, a, a normal warplane flying over you is that drones are sort of persistent, like they're in the air for hours at a time. Like your whole day is disrupted by hearing this boom sound over the top of you. Um, and for everyone I spoke to, they were aware that drones had surveillance cameras on them that um, people who have never gone to Afghanistan before have no... Um, or very little knowledge of Afghan culture mm. um, are watching them from above and, like, making lethal decisions on that basis. Um, and for people who've lost family members and friends to drone attacks, and that sound is really triggering, you know? It takes them back to the, to the day where um, their brother or their son or their best friend was killed in a drone attack. So not only are they, you know, reminded of a really um, difficult and traumatic experience when they hear that sound, they're also worried about, well, maybe today will be the day that I die in a mm. drone attack or that my other sibling will die or that my son or daughter will die. Um, 
Yeah, it's hard to know where to begin when I'm asked this question yeah. because um, the stories that I heard were just like so moving and there were effects like psychological and social effects that I hadn't like even considered despite having read about this topic for you know four years now, mm. um, including the ways in which it's affected their social life. Um, like social gatherings have been targeted in the past. Any group of people congregating together um, is quote-unquote suspicious. And so there have been attacks on like wedding parties and funerals and political meetings. And so for people living under drones, there's this huge fear about now engaging in those activities. Um, the other thing is that nighttime travel um, is almost entirely avoided because um, they're worried that nighttime, like traveling at night, will be considered suspicious mm. and grounds for bombardment. And so people were saying that, like, it used to be a huge part of their culture to go around to their friend's house for dinner um, and to, meet, to even stay the night um, and to definitely go around to friends' houses and stay the night if they were grieving a, a relative. Like, that, yeah. this is a really big part of their culture in terms of showing empathy that you would go around to a friend's house and stay the night. Mm. And uh, they've, I was told that, like, most villages have stopped this or they've like drastically limited um, all of these sort of forms of um, socially interacting out of fear, you know, that they'll be um, considered a potential insurgent and bombed because of that, you know, that has a huge effect on your social well-being. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's affecting pretty much every aspect of their life, you know, their financial means if someone in their family dies, um, you know, also that restriction of freedom and, and movement and freedom to express themselves and their culture seems to be like a huge thing that you've just said there. And obviously the, I mean, the clear one is the violence that, you know, is eventuating from utilising drone warfare. Um, I know that one of the uh, people who has been interviewed, I'm not sure if this is someone you've interviewed, um, Brandon Bryant. Yeah. Yeah, so it's probably a quote um, from your research, perhaps it was from the ABC. Um, it's a great story that I'm, I know you were a part of and really critical um, behind. And I really, it struck me um, what he said. He suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and he recounted one of his traumatic experiencing experiences um, saying, quote, the smoke clears and there's this guy over here and he's missing his right leg above his knee. He's holding it and he's rolling around and the blood is squirting out of his leg and it's hitting the ground and it's hot. His blood is hot, but when it hits the ground, it starts to cool off. The pool cools fast. It took him a long time to die. I just watched him. I watched him become the same colour as the ground he was lying on. Yeah, they're not, there aren't many words to something like that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are surprised when they hear or read testimonies of um, the drone pilots and sensor operators who have actually had the bravery to come forward and speak about it um, because we kind of popularly think of drone warfare as like a form of playing video games. Um, but for... Some or many, it's very hard to tell how many people who are drone pilots are emotionally affected in this way. But we know that at least some of them like really develop um, emotional connections to the people that they're surveilling. They've been surveilling them for days, weeks, potentially months. 
they really work up a sense of um, that person's life, you know, mm. their relationship with their children, their relationship with their partner, what their day-to-day schedule looks like. Um, and I, I did have the um, pleasure to meet Brandon and interview him and he talked about how uh, even the details about someone's life he didn't know he would start sort of imagining and making mm. up stories for them, um, like filling in the gaps almost. Um, so you can see how uh, empathy might start to develop if you're watching someone so um, intensively for a long period of time and then to be the same person who then um, presses the bottom, bu- button that drops the bomb on them. Um, you know, that's that's heart-wrenching stuff. Yeah. Um, and they're also tasked, drone pilots and sensor operators are also tasked with, like, watching um, the the scene of the attack after the bomb's been dropped. Um, and so you're kind of left in... Uh, you're left watching the injured or um, dead person um, and seeing like people rush to their bodies and seeing the funeral unravel and all these really sort of emotional um, events. Uh, It's heavy going stuff. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's not just uh, the civilian harm to to consider and to to really, really consider, um, but there's also the fact that, like, this isn't going to be easy for Australian Royal Air Force um, drone pilots and operators either like this is not a clean sanitizing distance form of war even if that's how it's sold and packaged to the public like for people spending their whole working life just watching death and destruction that's heavy going that wears Mm. you down you know um the other people i interviewed in the states have uh, problems with anxiety and depression and substance abuse. Um, they've had friends who have suicided in the drone program. Um, so it's it's not easy for those who are who are doing it, and it's definitely not easy for those who are living under drones. Yes, exactly. And I know that a lot of it is shift work. So you know, it seems to mess with people's sleeping and waking periods. You're in this kind of, I guess, a bunker really, like a, a closed off area just with air conditioning and and food um you know looking at a screen it's it seems like a very unnatural you know workplace environment to begin with let alone the actual content and activity of what people are expected to do yeah absolutely yeah the quality of life is extremely poor you're working Mm. really long shifts 12 to 14 hours every six weeks or so um your superiors might say, okay, now you're on a day shift or now you're on a mid shift, now you're on a night shift. So your schedule's like constantly changing. Um, You're in these sort of really remote areas of the United States where you haven't got much of a social life. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's really not ideal. No. And I think that one of the interesting things that you wrote in one of your pieces was around this um, use of technology. A lot of media and others have talked about, as you said, the video game kind of theory, which is, oh, well, you know, if it just looks like it's a game, people will have, it'll have a distancing effect and you don't have that level of um, personal engagement or emotional attachment or involvement um but you know you raised a point which i think is really pertinent is that technology is so pervasive in our lives that there is this kind of blurring of distinction around what is reality and what is not you know we spend a lot of time on the internet a lot of time on social media and we don't really distinguish between what happens online and what happens 
in our day-to-day world, it is really very much meshed together. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, the idea that just because something is mediated that it's not going to be potent or it's not going to move you in an emotional or effective way, like... I don't know how we would arrive at such a conclusion considering we live very mediated lives, right? We do, yeah. Like, I was just on a Skype conversation with a friend in New Zealand who told me that she was pregnant and I was like deeply moved by this conversation despite the fact it was taking place over Skype. Um, yeah, mediation doesn't mean that we're emotionally distant from the other human. Exactly. Um Alex, I just want to quickly touch on another element of this ethical and moral discussion. Um, Particularly, it's been very relevant um, in tertiary institutions, universities particularly, um, around defence organisations and companies which are often owned from by international companies, particularly American companies, um, creating research links into major universities in Australia. And that kind of ethical dilemma or conflict that many students particularly um, identify when they're made aware of these increasing links. What has been you know, how much of a link is there now between, I guess, research hubs or research um, areas in universities and defence companies and and the defence industry? Um, Or at the start of it, I'd say that uh, if you asked me this question in three or four years' time, I'd say that the extent of the partnerships was huge. At the moment, these contracts have been signed very recently, like last year or the year before, and so we're very much in the start of this sort of militarisation process. Um, But it's not looking good. Mm. It's really not. um, We have the University of Melbourne setting up a research lab with Lockheed Martin, the world's largest weapons manufacturer, and this is their first overseas research lab, so it's very significant for them too. Um, We've got a handful of universities in South Australia, University of South Australia, Flinders University, and another one that I'm forgetting right now, um, but they've recently signed on to a, a research contract with BAE Systems, um, which is the largest weapons manufacturer in the UK. Um, so this is all deeply troubling stuff, at least I find it deeply troubling, because um, Weapons manufacturers are essentially capitalising on um, students who are in deep debt. Um, they're really uh, quite open to the idea of receiving a, um, a generous scholarship and they're not necessarily aware of the fact that weapons uh, manufacturers are producing weapons of war. Mm. I mean, if you read the publicity material um, that the university is uh, sending out and also that the weapons manufacturers are sending out, Um, these companies are described as like advanced technology companies rather than weapons manufacturers. Um, So they're really uh, doing a good sort of public relations spin on what the kind of research that will be conducted. Yeah. Um, So you can clearly, like you can kind of easily see how an undergraduate engineering student who may not be like particularly political would say, oh, a generous scholarship, an internship possibility. I'm not going to have heaps of student debt and all I'm doing is contributing to an advanced technology company, you mm. know, not not a weapons manufacturer. Um, yeah, it's it's really troubling and um, it, it upsets me a lot. I mean, like the people that I interviewed in Afghanistan, 
the bombs being dropped on them are made by Lockheed Martin. The surveillance that they're um, subjected to, that whole infrastructure is pretty much manufactured by Lockheed Martin. And, and now, like my fellow PhD students at the university, will be you know contributing to that to that business to that industry of killing. Yes. And this is really um, important because a lot of those scholarships do stipulate um, what type of content needs to be produced or at least the topic that needs to be looked at um, in order to receive a a really generous scholarship. And it it works well in some areas like history where there's, you know, a huge lack of understanding of perhaps migration um, from certain areas to Australia and the lived experience of migrants. But if you're talking about something such as this, that that does raise an ethical question around, you know, whether particular individuals would feel comfortable contributing such a substantial amount of intellectual contribution and capital, a huge portion of their life, which is weighed down by a PhD, you know, the stress of of completing it, let alone what the topic is. Yeah, I agree. And I think that one of the um, sort of most intelligent things that the weapons industry has done has... um, has been to sell their products as having both civilian application and military application um, because in doing so, like, PhD students can just say, oh, you know, we're, we're manufacturing drones and drones are used to deliver humanitarian aid, therefore, you know, we're yeah. totally ethically justified. And it's like, yes, drones are used to deliver humanitarian aid. They're also used to surveil and bombard people mm. and, like, Perhaps, this is just a suggestion, uh, but perhaps we could have a society where uh, we did all of this great civilian research um, yeah. um, without it also having like this huge dark sort of military side to it where, you know, the regularity of violent attacks um, is an issue and... Um, I don't know. I, I, I would just hope that university research would be put towards peaceful ends rather than like increasing the amount of violence that we have in the world. Yes. Well, certainly every university is meant to be encouraging its students to think critically when they're engaging with the world. I know that's really the essence of an arts degree, which is why I think it's so awesome when people study the arts and humanities and social sciences. Um, We just did have Social Sciences Week, which seemed to be largely unacknowledged by people. So I think that's also a really good point to make is this over-focus on STEM can sometimes be to the detriment of other important endeavours. Uh, Alex, it's been really wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining me. Thank you for having me. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.